0: Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis.
1: Hello everybody, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Today we have as our guest, the Secretary of the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services, Cody Kinsley. Cody has been with the department since 2018, and he's been in this particular job now since uh, 2022. Cody, thank you for being with us and. Uh, we'd like to start off by just uh, uh, giving our listeners a little background of all the many areas of concern that fall under your responsibility as uh, the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services. Sort of take office and give us a little background. Sounds good. Well, first off, just thank you so much for
2: having me. It's great to be here and uh, talk a little bit about uh, all the work that we're doing to make North Carolina uh, healthy. So, you know, the department's divided into two big buckets, health and human services. It really all connects um, <clears throat> in its biggest form. You know, we set the rules of the road that make the healthcare system work in North Carolina. We invest in um, other things that help make people be healthy. Uh, and we also support the human services, uh, food access, et cetera, that people need to be well. Um, so more tactically that includes um things like our medicaid program which helps fund uh care through an insurance program for people in north carolina it's our public health system of course which people are familiar with um, because of covid uh and making sure that water is clean and Um, That communicable diseases are tracked and managed. Um, It's also about inspections of healthcare facilities and licensing them and creating them. It's about our Division of Child and um, Early Education uh, to help uh, license and manage, uh, you know, childcare centers across the state. Uh, it's our SNAP program and our WIC program to give people access to food and what people need to be healthy from an early age. Uh, it's also about our state psychiatric facilities that provide care for people with the most complex psychiatric needs in the state. All in, the department has 18,000 staff and a budget of about $28 billion. Uh, and we touch the life of every North Carolinian uh, many times uh, and often quietly with people out noticing what all with the goal of how do we make north carolina healthy and well
1: well that's a that's a great overview i i, I know uh, uh it, one of your responsibilities prior to becoming the uh, the secretary was to serve as the chief deputy secretary for uh and lead in north carolina's response for COVID 19 and i guess That would be a very interesting place to start because COVID-19 just sort of turned the world upside down for a couple of years and especially the areas of your concern. So tell us a little bit about what we did, how it worked out, because I think by all measures, North Carolina apparently did better handling COVID-19 than probably 48 states in the union, maybe 50. Um, So what did we do right and what did we learn?
2: You know, it's always fun to get in this time machine and to go back. You know, I like to remind people in March of 2020, um, people weren't so sure what was happening outside of the country, um, but there was just some fear and uncertainty. And it was just a few weeks later that people were using hand sanitizer to wash off their bananas from the grocery store. I mean, we had a big transition there into a land of uncertainty. And that's really what COVID was. It was a lot of uncertainty that we progressed through and that we learned and developed responses to it. Um, And we were building towards a set of tools to allow us to manage COVID so that it doesn't manage us. Um, In the earliest days, it was about PPE and having access to the protection equipment um, both in the healthcare setting but then broadly that helps uh, limit transmission of disease Um, and then once testing became available was about scaling access to testing Um, and then of course the big breakthrough on vaccinations um, and being able to roll out a vaccination campaign and then treatment to give people access to treatment when they got um ill and severely ill to prevent that illness you know for each individual um, process we went through um, you know we had to build out major operational things you know but part of what led us through all of that work was building really clear dashboards and data infrastructure to understand Who we were serving, who we were reaching, how we were partnering with people um, to build a retail infrastructure unlike anything that had ever been built before. Uh, A public health system that was widely available, that could touch and serve every person. And of course, we did that through a lot of partners. And I just, you know, incredibly grateful to our health system, to our public health partners, local communities, community health workers, folks that rolled up their sleeves to do whatever it took to kind of meet the need in the moment. And again, you know, we've risen to a point now where we have the tools to manage COVID so it doesn't manage us. And I'm happy to report that, you know, our COVID numbers are in a very good place, you know, and in some ways it is, um, you know, similar to other respiratory illnesses that we manage all the time. You know, it is no longer uncertain. It is no longer novel. It is known to us and we have the tools to manage it in a different way. Um, And it also reinforces the importance of being vigilant for diseases. You know, we had a smaller blip on the screen with a disease called MPOX that impacted people differently um, last year. But a lot of the same tools and process for a smaller group of folks we had to um, turn back on. And, And managing outbreaks is part of our bread and butter business. This is what we do. But this was a particularly um, frightening and large one that again the biggest credit goes to North Carolinians their their resilience to manage through this, to adapt to an evolving environment and to do so well through it all.
1: Well, you know it's going to be interesting 45 or 50 years from now when you tell your children and your uh, grandchildren that there was a time where we were all lining up to take vaccine vaccine shots and and we couldn't wait till we got the second one and and uh, uh, and Of course, we were all worried about uh, respirators and, of course, hospitals were overtaxed and uh, the health professionals did an incredible job of handling it all. It was a interesting period, and I think it's a period that we kind of like, want to kind of forget, but it is so important not to forget it because uh, it was uh, it handled so well. Uh, it has overview nationwide, worldwide where is COVID stand now in other countries or uh, because apparently the United States is handling it fairly well now how about other countries across the, the the globe you know what
2: what we're seeing um internationally is that we've built a pretty strong immunity wall against the disease you know we were experiencing through delta and omicron and then subvariants of omicron and evolution of the virus faster than kind of immunity would keep up with. And, and we saw these successive waves. The While the virus, as all viruses do, has continued to evolve, we see that our immunity is actually holding up really quite well. And so, you know, the most recent fall bivalent vaccine seems to be providing... Uh, bearing out on the data, really robust production against severe illness. Um, and we're getting closer to the kind of schedule of managing this just like we probably are going to manage flu, or as we manage flu, which is probably annual vaccines. That's not completely ironed out. I know right now we're still gathering information. But internationally, we see the similar trends. People are managing this well. Um, and, and again, it's people have either earned immunity the easy way vaccines, or they've earned it the hard way in getting sick. And, um, but we're glad to, to be in a very different place now than we have been.
1: You're talking about an annual vaccine. What kind of progress is being made toward, uh, uh can we expect one by next fall, uh, as far as an annual vaccine or, um... What do you forecast is the possibility of when we will see uh, a uh, vaccine similar to the flu vaccine.
2: You know, the federal government is working now on um, this information. And you know, the FDA and the CDC has a robust process that they go through and really trying to determine the schedule. Um, you know, the good news is that the way these vaccines work and their ability to um, update the vaccines, you know, the, the bivalent vaccine that was used this last fall was produced very quickly. And so, you know, as we start to understand what is the most recent variant that is trans, you know, being transmitted you know, that can be kind of plugged into this vaccine in a way that allows us to distribute it and reproduce it very quickly. So I think still uncertain exactly when we'll fall into a schedule and how frequent those shots will be recommended. Um, But it's looking like it's going in the direction of being an annual thing. Uh, I suspect we'll know in several months what that looks like.
1: Do you think it will be done in conjunction with the flu vaccine will there be two shots in one day or do you think there will be a time difference between when you take those shots
2: you know and this this is why this the schedule hasn't really been ironed out yet because we still don't fully understand the cyclical nature of this disease you know we know when flu season is to the point where we say it's a season right it tends to be in the winter months when people go back inside Um, as we look back at the um, nature of COVID over the last several years, we saw waves in the summer and in the winter. And so it, I would suspect that, you know, we will see waves in the winter, which would be the time to give people a vaccination in, in preparation for that, to try to stick the landing on the schedule to maximize um, the protection during the most at-risk period of time. Um, and, and it has already been decided and studied that the flu vaccine and the COVID vaccines can be co-administered at the same time. So if the if the need, right, if that ends up being the right window to give the COVID vaccine, then yeah, co-administration um, would be terrific uh in the sense of just one-stop shopping it's easy uh, you know kind of BOGO <laughs> if you will um but uh but again it's not about whether it can be done it's really more about whether it should be done and that's still understanding what is going to become the cyclical nature of this virus as it continues to evolve and travel around the globe
1: you know, you still have a number of people who won't take the flu vaccine and they're afraid I mean I've had I don't know how many people have told me. I t- you know, if you take the flu vaccine, you're likely to get flu. Well, that's it's a dead virus. It, that, that's not going to happen.
2: Yeah, that that's right. Unfortunately, there's still a lot of education. I mean, vaccines are the most important preventative public health tool we have. You know, again, <laughs> growing up, my father used to tell me there are two ways to learn. You can learn through your own experiences, or you can learn through the experiences of others, right? Learning through your own experience can be a tough thing sometimes, depending on what lesson you need to learn. Vaccines are learning through the experiences of others. You know, we can take and teach your body to have the immune response you need to have to a deadly virus without all the other bad parts of it. Vaccines are phenomenal, they have increased lifespans and save lives that you know millions and hundreds of millions of lives around the globe uh, and so um, flu vaccine covid vaccine measles mumps rubella tuberculosis you know, these are viruses we don't think about anymore because of vaccines
1: our guest is cody kinsley he's the secretary of the north carolina department of health and human services and we'll be back to talk about other strategies and uh, priorities of the, the department right after we take time out for these messages. So you stay tuned. As an 18 year old, I let my mistakes kind of take over my life. I was 0.5 credits away from completing high school and I didn't do it.
0: 10 years later, at age 28, Jackie finished her high school diploma.
1: When I found out that I was pregnant, I know that I had to do something for myself if I wanted to make her a better person and provide a better life for her. My family never stopped pushing for me to be better because they knew what I could become and who I could become as a person. My support team is amazing. The educational director, my sister, and even my seven-year-old daughter, has just been more than the support that I could ask for. I've been given an opportunity, and I'm just thankful for it.
0: No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, We'll probably stay together. Probably? (laughs) It's been 23 minutes since I ate. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.
1: Watch out! You got me! The galaxy is safe once again.
0: In the pretend universe, kids play with pretend guns. In the real world, it's up to us to make sure they don't get their hands on a real gun. If you have a gun in the house, keep it locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Safe gun storage saves lives. Learn how to make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. That's nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by N
1: Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council.
0: Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis.
1: We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest is Cody Kinsley. We've had a very interesting program talking about the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services, which he is the uh, uh, serving now as the secretary of that department. We talked earlier in the first segment about uh, COVID-19 and the lessons we learned. And if you missed that segment, you might want to go back and listen to it uh, by going to carolinanewsmakers.com. We'll talk about that later on. But uh, right now, as we promised at the end of the last session, the General Assembly is in action. And of course, they're working on the budget and uh, you've got lots of needs and lots of wants and lots of things to worry about. So what are some of your priorities and where do you think the General Assembly is going with those priorities uh, at, at, at this point in the game?
2: Well, I'll start with the one that we probably spent the most time talking about, which is behavioral health and resilience. I mean, I have been traveling across the state with uh, Senator Jim Bergen, uh, who is one of our chairs um, for uh, health and health appropriations in the Senate um and we've been joined by countless other legislators everywhere we go doing mental health town halls uh, i i don't go over to the legislature without hearing people talk about the importance of mental health time and time again whether it's uh, investing in children and their mental health or adults i think everybody's been touched by this and so i am uh, hoping for some really once in a generation investments in mental health. And, you know, the governor has outlined his recommendations of what that should look like and in, in our billion dollar plan. Again, encourage people to look at that. Um, but, you know, from increasing rates to so shoring up the crisis system to giving people a place to go when they're in crisis and preventing behavioral health illnesses in the first place, there's so much more we can be doing in North Carolina and we need to do in North Carolina. It's a smart investment for people.
1: The second, about, yeah, go, go right there. Oh, please is, continue.
2: Uh, the the second big area for us is supporting child and family well being. And so, in addition to the mental health aspects for children, you know, early intervention for kids, you know, supporting early education and high quality early education, which is a triple play. It helps people be. It helps kids have um, uh, health across their lifespan. It helps parents work and helps businesses thrive. Um, you know, closing the gap. You know, we see uh, black babies dying two and a half times more often than white babies um, in childbirth. Closing that infant mortality gap is a big investment for us. Making sure that kids at a young age have access to food, an essential building block for health and well-being. So those are big um, priorities for us this session. And then, last but certainly not least, is really investing in our caregiving workforce, whether that's nurses or healthcare providers childcare um workers or direct support professionals um, to serve individuals with disabilities. And of course our own staff of the department, we have a 28% vacancy rate. Um, you know, these are huge investments for us. So we've got a lot of priorities. Um, but again, I'm very hopeful there is a lot of shared um, voice among people in the recognizing our healthcare system stepped up and saved lives over the last several years. We got to pay it forward and reinvest in that so we can have a healthy future ahead
1: we touched earlier on medicaid expansion which is going to occur in north carolina Uh, go back over just how important that is and how many dollars are going to be involved from the federal government that uh, other states have had the benefit of for some time now we will
2: you know i like to say for medicaid expansion the dollars just make sense and we're talking about about eight billion dollars a year of federal money at no additional state taxpayer cost coming into North Carolina. Uh, four point eight billion dollars for um, insurance coverage for about six hundred thousand people., uh, and then another three point five ish billion dollars. For shoring up the hospitals and the safety net. Think about what that would do for rural health. Think about what that would do for healthcare businesses that are currently serving people that don't have insurance. You know, I think back to my own life. I grew up in North Carolina without health insurance. I know firsthand the experiences of going to a Um, provider on a sliding scale of watching my parents struggle with the decision on when to take me to the doctor. Um, These are challenges that 1.2 million people in North Carolina face every day. Medicaid expansion would draw so much resource into North Carolina um, or the health system that we're going to invest in making people better. Uh, And most importantly, I think about the the six hundred thousand stories that will change with it and i'm so happy to um, see it moving forward and i look forward to getting it done
1: you know one of the problems i'm sure you wrestle with every day is the fact that north carolina is really two states we have the very progressive uh 20 or so counties that uh, have great hospitals and great medical attention within say an hour of time many cases much closer than that but then we have a large part of the state where they are a long way away from really good hospitals uh really good health care how do you uh, how do you see that uh um, being attended to in a way that makes even the people in the most remote parts of the state uh uh, giving them more access to good health care
2: you know mm Starting with Medicaid expansion, I mean, we see in states that have expanded Medicaid, less closure of rural hospitals. North Carolina has had 10 rural hospitals closed in the last decade. Um, and just a few weeks ago, ECU Health and a few months ago, ECU Health in the eastern part of the state closed five outpatient clinics. Um, Medicaid expansion will help change that dynamic to keep those businesses in place. Um, but you're right, we need to expand care. Part of that is with the opportunity to innovate with telehealth. The governor has made you know, um, real signature leadership investments uh, in expanding access to broadband across the state. Um, and we know people that may see their primary care doctor um, in their hometown, but they may see a specialist in Charlotte Uh, And instead of driving two hours, they can do it via telehealth, um, which is phenomenal. It doesn't solve every problem, but it begins to stretch the web of access. North Carolina is the second most rural state in the country as far as number of population in towns that are rural. And, you know, telehealth is a great strategy for expanding access um, to care. Um, we also invested during covid when we had federal money to do this we purchased mobile vans to do access to care mobily, whether that's substance use disorder treatment behavioral diabetes screenings early primary care and prevention services um, you know expanding the web of access for those individuals um, as well so you know there is definitely more to do in this space rural health is a big priority for us at the department across all of our efforts Um, and it and it touches um, you know every North Carolinian
1: we started out this segment talking about your uh, goals with the General Assembly and we've mentioned just a few including that billion dollar uh, plan that you have what other priorities do you have at the General Assembly that might not necessarily involve money but involve policy
2: I mean I think that my my mind immediately Goes to gosh, there's so many. Um, and so trying to to focus in, um, you know, there are a number of things that we need to do in our behavioral health system, but my mind actually immediately goes to foster youth. Um, you know, we've had an increased number of children enter the foster care system. Um and w- we really need to rethink how that system works in north carolina in particular how foster youth and um, get behavioral health services Uh, the department has proposed moving from um, a regional based way that those kids are served into a statewide based way Um, we need to have one focused provider and you know plan of providers that serve them Um, and that's a dynamic change that has been you know mildly controversial but you know it bears out in the data we've got 175 kids that are currently getting treatment outside of north carolina we have dozens of foster youth sleeping in dss offices Um, we've got uh, another dozens of foster youth that are languishing in emergency departments Uh, North Carolina is not doing right by these kids. And while we have made real investments and we have made changes to date, uh, we know that there is more to do and we're eager to work with the House and the Senate to make the structural change to put forward a foster care plan that serves these kids in a more cohesive
0: way.
1: Well, I would imagine that when you talk to the General Assembly members, when you talk in terms of these numbers and in some cases the numbers don't sound all that big but i would imagine the response you get from most legislators if not all is one is too many one is too many
2: that's that's absolutely right i mean you know when we're talking about hundreds that can feel small but you know hundreds of plane crashes you know to me it's, it's a relative thing i don't want one kid sleeping in an ED, and when I'm talking about sleeping in an emergency department, I'm talking about sleeping on a mattress in the floor. You know, this is not a treatment, therapeutic, supportive environment, you know, and with the, you know, 12 to 14,000 foster youth in North Carolina, we can do better. You know, a couple weeks ago, I was with an organization called Say So, um, which is uh, about um, foster youth self-advocating for their own future, and I was so inspired by these young young kids and young adults that have grown up in the foster system and who are you know such a bright part of north carolina's future um, and investing in them is a no-brainer for us for our long-term economic health and well-being and for their long-term well economic health and well-being and you know we have got to do better by these kids
1: well, you've got about 45 seconds to answer this question. We've talked about all sorts of things, ranging from the opioid crisis to the tobacco and alcohol use to behavioral health and mental health and so forth. Now you've got about 35 seconds as I'm taking too much time in this question. What is your number one priority tomorrow? What no. are you, wor- what are you, what's number one on your list tomorrow? Well, I would
2: say until the vote earlier today, it was get Medicaid expanded, but I guess I will stick with it and say, get Medicaid expanded, get it implemented. It is foundational to everything that we need to do in North Carolina.
1: Well, you took less time than I wanted you to take, but that's just great. We Our guest has been Cody Kinsley. And as I said, we've talked about all sorts of the areas of the Department of Health and Human Services, of which he serves as secretary. And I would suggest strongly, if you missed part of this broadcast, go back to carolinanewsmakers.com and listen to the entire broadcast again. Uh, one of the most interesting segments was what we learned from the COVID-19 crisis and how North Carolina reacted to that. Very interesting program, and Cody, we certainly appreciate you taking time to be with us. Again, if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and do just that. The program has been produced by Jason Cog, and he'll have another guest for us next week. So the next week, same time, same station. Have a good week, everybody.